2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, if you're turning in one of our pew Bibles, you're looking for page 907. Um, we're going to start off actually backtracking a bit. Uh, we're going to reread um, through a portion of text that Chad preached on last week uh, because what Paul is continuing here in our text this morning, verses uh, eight through, or excuse me, 13 through 18, um, is an image that he began, that he opened with. I'm getting a lot of weird feedback right now. Thank you. Um, Paul is continuing an image and description, an idea uh, that he began in uh, the verses preceding. So, if you're with me, go ahead. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We will begin reading in verse 7. It says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you." Uh, Verse 13 begins our text for this morning. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we open uh, your word together this morning, would you uh, give me the words to say to speak to your people? Um, Holy Spirit, come into this place. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds and our hearts to receive the truth of your word um, that you spoke uh, through the words of the Apostle Paul so many centuries ago. Lord, we know that it is living and breathing and active, that you have something to say to us today through this word. Show us what it is, Father. Change us through it. Make us better followers of Jesus because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Here, in this passage, verses uh, 13 through 18, Paul's continuing this image. The image is of jars of clay, and that's you and me. What Paul begins was, is talking about is what one commentator says is uh, like the ancient version of Tupperware. Uh, clay jars or clay uh, vessels would be like the easily disposable um, container units of the ancient world. They were really fragile. They were brittle. But they were also somewhat easy to make and produce. So they would use them for somewhat ordinary things. Sometimes they would use them for expensive things. But the point that Paul is trying to make here when he calls us jars of clay that carry treasure is that we are, as human beings, fragile. 
We can easily be broken. We can easily be beaten up. And in this world of corruption and sin, we are. That's exactly what happens. But what Paul is trying to say also is that when we are beaten up, when we are chipped or poked full of holes, something comes out of us. It's the something that we carry as clay jars. That's the gospel. That's grace. That is the treasure that we carry within us as jars of clay. So what Paul is about to expand on in these verses, 13 through 18, um, is really what it's like, what it looks like, and how we can really survive and thrive in this life, in this calling as broken clay jars that carry treasure. How do we do this? What does it look like? We're going to look at four things this morning, uh, four uh, points if you want to call them that. I'm kind of a rebel Baptist preacher in that I don't like to point my sermons, but it just worked out this way. I don't know, maybe it's a millennial thing. So four things we're going to look at this morning. First is what. What we as treasure-carrying clay jars do. Second, we're going to look at two reasons why we do this thing. Third, we're going to look at an instructive, I I hope encouraging, example from church history of someone who did this and did it well for the right reasons. And lastly, we're going to look at the how, how we can do the same as this man from Christian history, as this example did it. We're going to see how we can also do this thing and how it can help our Christian life. First off, the what. What is it that we as Christians do? Look at verse 16, uh, and if you're into doing such things, underline the first phrase, I personally don't mark up my Bible, it's something about it, that's my compulsion, you will not find a single highlight or pen mark anywhere. It doesn't mean I don't read it, it's just, I, I just can't mark it up, I will print it out on a piece of paper, but if you are a highlighter or an underliner, this is the phrase to underline. The beginning of verse 16, it says this, So we do not lose heart. That is the phrase. This is the center point of this passage. What we're going to look at is what comes before and what comes after are really two different arms, two different uh, pillars that hold up this statement. All right? This is the center of Paul's argument. We, we Christians, we followers of Christ, we broken, fragile clay jars that carry treasure, we do not lose heart. The pinnacle of the passage. But what does this mean? What does he mean by lose heart? This phrase is, is, is one word in the Greek, and it means to be like completely weary, to be empty. The idea here is to be completely unable to go on doing what you need to do, what you're called to do, what you know you're supposed to do. We, as Christians, Paul says, do not lose heart. We don't reach this point of complete weariness or emptiness or inability to go on. We keep heart. As we saw last week, uh, the Christian life is inescapably difficult. If you go back and read verses 8 through 10, let me show you again what uh, the phrases are that Paul uses to describe uh, this life. He says, verse 8, we are afflicted. And he goes to say, we are perplexed, like we don't understand what's going on. We are persecuted, and we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. 
is how he summarizes it, which is to say like there is always a part of us that's being afflicted. It's always being worn down. And like we as clay jars, we're constantly being chipped, constantly having pieces break off or constantly being dropped or worn down or poked full of holes. We are fragile. Our Christian life is inescapably difficult through all kinds of trials. Paul summarizes it this way in the middle of verse 16. Right after he says, we do not lose heart, he says, our outer self is wasting away. That's a basic part of the human experience. From the time you die, you reach like the pinnacle of your health sometime around your teenage years. And from that point on, your body just gradually breaks down. We literally just start wasting away. That's the human experience. And sometimes spiritually, that is what we are also experiencing. We are gradually being chipped off, worn out, poked full of holes, wasted away. But losing heart is still something that we don't do. Somehow, in this Christian life, we still keep heart. And right here, before we go on, I want want to make sure to clarify something important. Losing heart is different from struggling, okay? If you look at the, at the life of the author of this passage, um, Paul had some struggles. He's writing to a church in this letter who had some real struggles. They had times in their lives where God seemed far away, or that they were worn down, that they didn't want to go on, that they felt like they were running on empty. The Christian experience of struggling is nothing to be ashamed of and nothing to uh, shy away from or or feel guilty about. It is part of the normal experience. But it's different from losing heart. There's an extreme side of struggling that Paul is addressing here. Something beyond the normal, this is difficult as a Christian living this life. Your suffering, your pain, your affliction, your persecution, whatever form it takes, is real. The Corinthian church's was real. Paul's was real. The image here, to borrow from an athletic image that Paul uses elsewhere, is like, it's okay to slow down, to struggle with the rugged terrain and the uphill climbs, but we do not stop running. We do not lose heart. That's the what. What's the why? We do not lose heart because our sufferings, our broken jarredness, as it were, is a means, and it has ends. Our sufferings, our broken jar existence is a means. Paul's image here in verse uh, 15 is that when a jar is broken, grace, the treasure we carry, pours out. Look at verse 15 with me. That's the wrong page. Verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends, grace extends, grace is being poured out of us when we are broken, to more and more people it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In other words, when you are broken, when you're poked full of holes, when a, a persecution or affliction breaks you or pokes you in some way, what should come out of your life is the grace. It is the treasure that you carry And when the people in your life see that, 
They are moved by it. It changes them. They turn to God in thanksgiving and receiving the gospel hope that you have, that you have just shown them, that has just poured out of you. They turn to God in thanksgiving, and he is glorified by a servant who is obedient and following him and by a new soul that has given his life to follow him. These are the means, our sufferings are a means of salvation to other people, a means for God's grace to be poured out. One of my um, favorite bands is an um, alt-rock group from Southern California. Don't hold that against them. Uh, from, their name's Switchfoot, and I think it's 2016. They had a song that was simply called, like, Your Wound is Where the Light Shines Through. That's the picture of the Christian life here. Your wound is where the light of Christ shines out. Okay, so that's the means. Our sufferings, our broken genres are means, and they have ends, two of them. One, they literally have a time when they will be no more. Your sufferings, your afflictions, our persecutions, they will all come to an end. Look at the beginning of verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction, momentary, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The suffering will have an end, a literal time of cutoff, an expiration date. But it has another end. It has a result. And we talked about it a second ago. The meat that this other result is that people see the grace pouring out, respond to the gospel, give thanks to God, saved by Jesus Christ, give him glory. There's actually another result. It's in the middle of verse 17. It says this, momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This affliction we endure actually prepares something for us in eternity. Now, we know that that's an award, a, a reward, a, an eternal dwelling place, you know, the mansions and glory we sing about. Um, I'm going to leave that there because that's actually the next thing that Paul is going to talk about in following verses. So if you're curious more what that means, come back next week. You get to hear Chad talk about it. Okay? So Paul is going to address that more uh, in the following verses. All right, so we see the what we uh, do not give up, we endure, um, we do not lose heart, we see the why. Our sufferings are a means and they have ends. And thirdly, I want to do something a little different today. Famous last words for a youth pastor. I want to show you an example from uh, Christian history. Uh, an example of someone who knew these things and lived them out in an absolutely extraordinary way. Um, if you were in Deacon's meeting with us earlier, you know Chad almost spoiled this. Uh, the, the person I have in mind that I want to share with you today is a guy named Adoniram Judson. Uh, some of you may know the name. Uh, if you do, uh, maybe you've read a biography about him. Great. If you've never heard of him before, he was the first foreign missionary from the United States. He's the first missionary from the United States to ever be sent overseas to a mission field to a people that had never heard the gospel before. And he was also a Baptist. So there's that. Okay? 
What I want to read for you today is a short version um, of his biography. Uh, this is an, adapted from uh, something that John Piper wrote. Um, John Piper is a great church historian and loves to read the stories and share the stories uh, of the great saints of the past, particularly missionaries. Um, if you're curious, though, and want to know more about his life, I strongly recommend this. This is one of the best things that seminary ever gave me. Uh, this is the full biography. It's rather meaty. Uh, to the Golden Shore, biography of Adoniram Judson, uh, produced by uh, Judson Press. Bears his name. Um, this, probably more than any other single book out of seminary, shaped the way I view the Christian life and gave me so much courage to face so much in this life. And every time I come to a passage in Scripture where the topic is, like, is God's sustenance of his servants, his provision, the promise that he will do a work through us in the midst of suffering, every time I come to one of those passages, this is who I think of and what I learned reading this book. So if you're interested for more, here you go. Otherwise, listen to this, the story of Adoniram Judson. The story of Adoniram Judson's losses is almost overwhelming. Just when you think the last one was the worst and he could endure no more, Another comes. In fact, it would be overwhelming if we could not see it all from God's long historical view. The seed that died a thousand times has given life in Myanmar, formerly Burma, to an extraordinary movement to Christ. Let me here read you a passage that Piper is going to reference multiple times. It's a complimentary text to what we read today. John 12, 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Judson entered Andover Seminary in Newton, Massachusetts on October of 1808. And on December 2nd, he made solemn dedication of himself to God. The fire was burning for missions at Andover. On June 28, 1810, Judson and others presented themselves for missionary service in the East. He met Anne Hasseltine that same day and fell in love. After knowing Anne for one month, he declared his intention to become a suitor and wrote to her father the following letter. There are not many 24-year-olds who write like this. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part ways with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this 
in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Her father, amazingly, said she could make up her own mind. Adoniram and Anne were married on February 5th, 1812, and sailed for India 14 days later with two other couples and two single men divided among two ships in case one went down. After a brief time in India, Adoniram and Anne chose to take uh, the risks of venturing to a new field. They arrived at Rangoon, Burma on July 13th, 1813. In Burma, there began a long battle in 108-degree heat with cholera, malaria, dysentery, and other unknown miseries that would not only take Anne, but a second wife. Seven of his 13 children and colleague after colleague in death. Through all the struggles with sickness and interruptions, Judson labored to learn the language, translate the Bible, and do evangelism in the streets. Six years after he and Anne arrived, they baptized their first convert. Six years after they arrived, they baptized their first convert, Mang Nao. The sowing was long and hard, the reaping even harder for years. But in 1831, 19 years after their arrival, there was a new spirit in the land. And Judson wrote, quote, The spirit of inquiry is spreading everywhere. Through the whole length and breadth of the land, we have distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving to none but those who ask. I presume there have been 6,000 applications at the house. Some come two or three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China. Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Others from the frontiers of Cathay, a hundred miles north of Ava, the capital city of Burma. Sir, we have seen a writing that tells us about an eternal God. Are you the man who gives away such writings? If so, pray give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Others from the interior of the country, where the name of Jesus Christ is a little known. Are you Jesus Christ's man? I love that question. Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. But there had been an enormous price to pay between the first convert in 1819 and this outpouring of God's power in 1831. In 1823, Adoniram and Anne moved from Rangoon to Ava, the capital, about 300 miles inland and further up the Irrawaddy River. It was risky to be that near the despotic emperor. In May of the next year, a British fleet arrived in Rangoon and bombarded the harbor. All Westerners were immediately viewed as spies. Adoniram was dragged from his home. On June 8, 1824, he was put in prison. His feet were fettered. And at night, a long horizontal bamboo pole was lowered and passed between the fettered legs and hoisted up until only the shoulder and heads of the prisoners rested on the ground. Anne was pregnant, but she walked the two miles daily to the palace to plead that Judson was not a spy and that they should have mercy. On November 4th, 1825, Judson was suddenly released. The government needed him as a translator in negotiations with Britain. The long ordeal was over, 17 months in prison and on the brink of death, with his wife sacrificing herself and her baby to care for him as she could. Anne's health was broken. 
11 months later, on October 24th, 1826, she died. And six months after that, their daughter died. The psychological effect of these losses was devastating. Self-doubt overtook his mind, and he wondered if he had become a missionary for ambition and fame and not humility and self-denying love. He began to read stranger theologians who led him to practice severe forms of self-affliction in order to push against what Judson saw as his personal demons and selfishness. He dropped his Old Testament translation work, the love of his life, and retreated more and more from people and from God. Quote, anything that might conceivably support pride or promote his pleasure is what he retreated from. He, got, he had a grave dug beside his hut, and he sat beside it, contemplating the stages of the body's dissolution. He retreated for 40 days alone into the tiger-infested jungle and wrote in one letter that he felt utter spiritual desolation. Quote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Unquote. His brother, El Nathan, died back in Massachusetts on May 8th, 1829, at the age of 35. Paradoxically, this proved to be the turning point of Judson's recovery because he had reason to believe that the brother he had left in unbelief 17 years earlier had died in faith. All through the year of 1830, Adoniram was climbing out of his darkness. Central to Judson's missionary labors from the beginning and especially at this juncture in his life, was the translation of the Bible. In these years of spiritual recovery, without a wife and children, he confined himself to a small room built for the purpose of being able to devote almost all his energy to refining the New Testament translation and pressing on with the Old Testament. At the end of 1832, 3,000 copies of the completed New Testament were printed. He finished the Old Testament in January of 1834. With the first draft of the Bible in Burmese complete, it seems as though God smiled on these labors with the favor of a new wife. Three years earlier, another missionary in Burma named George Boardman had died. His widow, Sarah, stayed in Burma and became a legend in her own right, pressing into the interior with her baby, George. In February of 1834, Judson received a letter from Sarah. On April 1st, he left Mulmain for Tavoy, resolved to court her, court her. On April 10th, they were married. That was quick. These were to be some of his happiest times in Burma, but not without pain, and not to last much more than a decade. After bearing eight children in 11 years, Sarah became so ill that the family decided to travel to America in the hopes that the sea air would work healing. Judson had not been to America now for 33 years and was returning only for the sake of his wife. As they rounded the tip of Africa in September 1845, Sarah died. The ship dropped anchor at St. Helena Island long enough to dig a grave and bury a wife and mother, then sail on. This time, Adoniram did not descend into the depths of depression as before. He had his children, but even more, his sufferings had disengaged him from hoping for too much in this world. He was learning how to hate his life in this world without bitterness or depression. And now he had one passion, to return and give his life for Burma. 
Judson's stay in the States did not go according to plan. To everyone's amazement, he fell in love a third time, this time with Emily Chubuck, and married her on June 2nd, 1846. She was a famous writer and left her fame and writing career to go with Judson to Burma. They arrived in November 1846, and God gave them four of the happiest years that either of them had ever known. Adoniram and Emily had one child. Things looked bright, but then the old sickness attacked Adoniram one last time. The only hope was to send the desperately ill Judson on a voyage. April 3rd, 1850, they carried Adoniram onto the Aristride Marie, bound for the Isle of France with one friend, Thomas Rainey, to care for him. In his misery, he would be roused from time to time by terrible pain ending and vomiting. One of his last sentences was, quote, how few there are who die so hard. At 4.15 on Friday afternoon, April 12th, 1850, Adoniram Judson died at sea, away from all his family and the Burmese church. That evening, the ship hove to, the crew assembled quietly, this is quoting the Golden Shore here, the crew assembled quietly, the larboard port was opened, there were no prayers. The captain gave the order, and the coffin slid through the port into the night. Ten days later, Emily gave birth to their second child, who died at birth. She learned four months later that her husband was dead. She returned to New England that January and died of tuberculosis three, three years later at the age of 37. Judson's life was a grain of wheat that fell into the soil of Myanmar and died again and again. The suffering was immense, and so was the fruit. At the turn of the second to the third millennium, Patrick Johnstone estimated that Myanmar, Burma's now name, Myanmar's Baptist Convention, to be 3,700 congregations with 617,781 members and 1.9 million affiliates the fruit of a dead seed. Of course, there were others besides Judson and his wives, hundreds of others over time. They too came and gave their lives away. Many of them died much younger than Judson, and they only served to make the point. The astonishing fruit in Myanmar today has grown in the soil of the suffering and death of many missionaries, especially Adoniram Judson. So we've seen the what. We do not lose heart. We've seen the why. Because our sufferings are a means and they have ends. We've now seen an example, a who, if you were, from the life of Judson. But now the question is how? How did they do it? How did Adoniram Judson and his wives do this? How did they endure so much for so long? How do you endure? Or how did you endure what you faced in the past? How will you endure what you face in the future? How did they do it? They were renewed. Look at verse 16 again. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
but how does this happen? Look towards 17 and 18. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look, keyword here, look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. How do we not lose heart? We look at unseen, eternal things. We remember the promises of God. We look to the hope of future glory. We read the stories of God keeping his promises and remembering his people. We anticipate the end of our afflictions. We long for the restful embrace of Jesus. And we savor the goodness and greatness of God. But how do I actually do this? Like, all right, these are the things, here's the direction. But how do I draw my eyes from the seen and transient things of this world and look to the unseen and eternal? Paul knows he's writing about a difficult thing here. God gave us eyeballs. It's our primary sense. It's the first thing that we consider. You wake up in the morning, the first thing you think about, unless you just intentionally keep your eyes open, hoping for sleep and 15 more minutes to come, you open your eyes. And you see things. So, but how do we look, look to things that we cannot see? How do we actually do this? What the question is really asking is this. What sorts of things will keep me focused on the unseen and the eternal? At this point, I would direct you to things we would call the disciplines of worship. Worship disciplines or Christian disciplines or whatever you want to title them, they can be anything that reminds us or teaches us the greatness of God, anything that glorifies him, or anything that builds his kingdom. Here are a few examples, and there are many, many more. Singing, like actually singing. Good, rich doctrinal songs, reading things like Christian history and seeing the examples of people who have done it before, who have been sustained by the same God, the same spirit, and the same word for the same purpose as you. Taking the Lord's Supper, memorizing scripture, praying for our foreign missionaries, sacrificially giving to support the church and its missions, Doing family worship together at the dinner table with a catechism or a hymnal. All of these things drive the truth that fuels change down into our hearts. Tim Keller has a fantastic illustration that I will just give credit for and borrow because I don't think I can do better. He describes it this way. Is like, imagine uh, the truth of God's word is like an explosive, okay? And our lives are like rock. If you're, a, if you're someone who works with stone and you, you're in a quarry and your whole job is to get the stone broken apart, you're, you're trying to change it. You're trying to change its shape, change its position, get it to move. A lot of times you use explosives. But you don't just set the explosive on top of the rock, light it, and let it go off that just makes the rock look ugly. It just scars it, blasts it, 
makes it black. That doesn't do anything. Doesn't change the fact that the dynamite still has power, but there's no actual change because of that power. So what instead do you do? You take a drill. You drill deep down into that rock. And you drop the explosive in. And then what happens? The whole thing cracks. And it actually changes. And it actually moves. These things that we do, these worship disciplines, are the things that renew us by the grace of God because these are the things that drill down deep into our hearts and deep into our being. And they plant the truth down in there so that we cannot forget it, so that it is the first thing that we turn to, so that it beats out the lies of the enemy that say, you cannot do this, you are beyond hope, you're empty, just give up, it's not worth it. We do these things because it drills the truth down deep and creates change. When you sacrificially give to support the church and missions, you're reminded that your money really doesn't mean anything in this world, and you're not going to have it for very long anyway. So why not do something with it that has an eternal purpose and value? When you read Christian history, you're reminded that you are not the first one to walk this difficult life on this difficult earth. There are others who have done it before, and the Lord sustained them, and he'll sustain you too. All of these things drive this incredible, powerful truth into our hearts. So these are the four things. What we do, we do not lose heart. Why we do it? They are means that have ends, our suffering. We've seen an example from Adoniram Judson, and we've seen how. We are renewed, we are filled with grace by the disciplines of worship. So go do the things that renew your spirit in Christ Jesus so that you may carry on for the kingdom, so that you may not lose heart and not grow weary. As we, as follow, we who follow Christ are sojourners, we're in a strange land longing for our eternal home. It's to that home that we'll turn next week. Let's pray.